Hey church, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. Please open your Bibles and meet me in Mark chapter 8. Don't worry, we will get to Romans 3 in just a moment. Romans 3.24 will be our primary text, but we're going to start in Mark. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, and we're going to look at a couple of different passages there. Considering Jesus' early uh, earliest followers often had a very hard time uh, acknowledging or accepting his teaching when he started to bring up, when Jesus started to bring up his own death, they had a hard time understanding how that could be the necessary or logical conclusion of so many of the different things that they had experienced, not only with Jesus, but in their education uh, as uh, Hebrews of understanding what the Messiah was going to be all about. And so it's almost as if the disciples are in denial, no matter what Jesus teaches, no matter how many times he teaches about his impending death and his coming crucifixion, there is something in their way of thinking about the Messiah, about power, redemption, that that is unprepared for what Jesus is saying, real power, real redemption, and the real messianic work is all about. So let's look at a couple of those uh, passages to sort of prepare us for what uh, God has for us in Romans 3 today. So Mark 8, verse 31, and we'll read through 33. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Similarly, look at uh, Mark 9, verse 30. Mark 9, verse 30. It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So not only are they having a hard time uh, understanding what Jesus is saying, they don't really want to know. They're not even asking follow-up questions to get more clarity. Uh, Again, Mark 10, verse 32. So just uh, turn to the left. Mark 10, 32 through 34. Here's a third time in Mark's gospel that Jesus foretells his death. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will con- They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Peter, uh, or rather the disciples don't understand Jesus. And Peter rebukes Jesus when he speaks about dying. And his disciples are even afraid to ask Jesus about his death or what that really means. Is he speaking literally, figuratively, or in some sort of metaphorical way? And James and John, two of the disciples, they they come along and act like they haven't heard a word that Jesus has taught. And after 
these uh, three different predictions. Uh, James and John come to him. They draw, they draw near. And really, Mark is really kind and, and not... Um, he, he's, he's very gracious, Mark is, with James and John. But Matthew outs them, uh, though, and tells us that the brothers didn't go on their own to Jesus. They actually sent their mom to talk to Jesus. So through their mom, they ask Jesus, James and John, do, if they can sit one at his left and one at his right when, when they say when he comes in to his kingdom. In other words, the two most significant cabinet uh, members, they, they desire to sit at the left and the right of Jesus. And even though Jesus has repeatedly told them that he is going to die, they still presume in their mind, in their hearts, that he is going to take an earthly throne and exact a kind of earthly authority and power over their enemies and that Jesus would sit then on an earthly throne and have these seats even available. Uh, and even though the, these expectations are there and even though they are facing the Messiah, they're looking at the Son of God himself, staring at him in the face, uh, he, he would not ascend though to an earthly throne, but instead Jesus is going to Jerusalem and he is going to give his life away. They could not let go of their vision, their understanding, their expectation of the Messiah, their understanding of power. And so to James and John, and unlikely now Jesus turns to them and not speaking to their mom, but turns to them, Mark 10, verse 42. So if you're still in that passage, look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, here's James and John, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And here what Jesus says, verse 45, Mark 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus reiterates his purpose. What he's done three different times in Mark's gospel in chapter 8, chapter 9, and also chapter 10. He does again that he came to die. But he also now explains that in giving his life, he is paying a price for humanity. What Jesus is saying is that Jesus is a ransom. This sets Jesus apart from every other spiritual leader, every other worldview, every other religious figure. You see, Buddha and in subsequent incarnations in the Dalai Lama is the example for the Buddhist. Muhammad is the example for Muslims. The Pope is the example for Catholics. Someone like perhaps Kim Kardashian is an example for social media influencers. Every other worldview has a particular leader who comes as an example. But Jesus did not come to be our example. Not, not only. In, in his own words, what does Jesus say? He came to be our ransom. No other spiritual leader, no other religious figure could make such a claim and did make such a claim to have come to die for their followers. Only Jesus makes such a claim. Only Jesus did such a thing. As we consider the latter half of Romans 3, verse 24 today, this is the idea that needs to be at the forefront of our mind because it is fundamental to our understanding of what 
Paul is going to say about Christ, that he is our redemption. This idea that he is the ransom is fundamental to understanding redemption. See, we rarely use that word today, except perhaps when we're talking about a kidnapping and that price that you would pay to free whomever has been kidnapped. But in the ancient world, a ransom was understood to be the price for liberation, the price to liberate a slave or slaves or a prisoner. And Jesus calls himself a ransom for many. And so the question we need to explore is how could, or rather, what could he possibly mean by this? Well, in the New Testament theology, Jesus is talking about redemption. He's talking about being our redemption. And that's the word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 3, verse 24. So keep turning to the right if you're still in Mark. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, or just type it into your devices. Romans 3, verse 24. Here's what he says, and here's where we will spend our time today. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And are justified by his grace as a gift, which we looked at last week, and now through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. See, remember, salvation is all about our justification, the announcement of righteousness given to us by grace by the righteous one. It is a gift. However, that gift is not free. Salvation is free for us, but salvation is not free. Paul says this gift, this grace of justification comes by way of redemption. That, in other words, is the cost of grace. And that's what we need help to understand today. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. And we'll continue. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would train us up in godliness. Pray, Father, that you would bind up the wounds of our hearts I pray that you would sharpen our minds, that we'd think rightly about who you are. I pray that you would engender to us compassion and empathy for our neighbors. I pray you would give us joy in the truth. I pray you'd help me to be clear, Father. May I even worship as I speak from your word today. We pray, Father, to this you continue to bind us together as a community that is scattered, yet, yet gathered in this unique identity as your church. And pray, Father, that you'd bind us together by your word, bind us together by the truth and beauty of the gospel, and help us, God, to repent of sin, to cling to you as our hope and our savior, and, and today specifically to understand what it is that we, we were purchased at a price, the price of redemption, the price of Heavenly Father of your Son, Jesus. So, so give us joy in that today. Give us, give us humility in this. Give us celebration and worship in this today, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said, amen. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the person that we need to look to in considering something uh, like the cost of grace. He was a pastor who uh, powerfully refuted and worked against the uh, not only Hitler, but the Nazi efforts in the late 30s and early uh, 40s, he was captured and eventually executed in a concentration camp. And he summarized what he coined this, this phrase of costly grace. 
he summarizes it this way, what, what it is in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, grace is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Yet, ye were bought, he says, at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace, he says, is the incarnation of God. See, salvation is, is, is not free. Salvation is free for us because it cost Christ dearly. So a universe of meaning is packed into this particular word, but in a very short explanation that Paul gives about the power of salvation in redemption. See, we are and we have been redeemed. We have been freed through the cost of Christ's life. We have been bought out of slavery and sin and oppression. We've been liberated. And and redemption and, and this whole concept, Redemption is not Paul's idea. See, the Jewish people had a cogent understanding of redemption. In Leviticus chapter 24, the writer goes at lengths to explain God's expectations for the redemption of property, specifically of land. See, in the ancient world, in agricultural society, land was not simply a place where somebody lived, but it was a means by which they lived. It's it's how they ate. It's how they made uh, their living. And as such, it was really easy then because so much was contingent and and, um, built upon this land. It was really easy to get into debt and nearly impossible to get out of debt. And so in Leviticus chapter 25, God instituted provisions and pathways, if you will, of relief for his people who may fall into financial trouble, financial hardship that they couldn't climb out of themselves. And specifically, there's this repeated phrase in Leviticus chapter 25 that If one of your countrymen becomes poor, if one of your countrymen becomes poor, in in other words, there's this language of ownership, and that establishes this enduring relationship with this, uh, this covenant community and its members that God instructed his people that if a man had to sell his land to get out of debt, the nearest relative or redeemer was obligated to buy or to redeem that property for their relative. In essence, and and often in actuality, this redemption kept the family from jail, from slavery, and from death. And that relative who would have made that purchase, who would have redeemed that property and redeemed, therefore, that family was known as a kinsman redeemer. And this biblical principle is on incredibly clear display in the story of Ruth. Perhaps you have heard it. A widow named Naomi was forced to sell a parcel of her land when her husband um, Elimelech died. The relative in position, based on Leviticus chapter 25, to buy back the land hesitated when uh, a man named Boaz made it clear that it would include Ruth. It would include taking her on and as she was a a part of the inheritance of that land. And this relative was worried then about the implications of redeeming Ruth's family at the expense of his own. And so Boaz, 
who was not obligated by Leviticus 25, actually writes himself into the story, agreeing to become the kinsman redeemer. Hear this from Ruth chapter 4, 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Notice this language of redemption that Boaz uses. Notice that the redemption of Naomi and the land and Ruth is about bringing back to life that which was dead, to preventing eternal death from that which was destined to complete ruin. See, Boaz pays the price, buys back this family from eternal debt and complete separation from any sort of livelihood, from death itself. And this, of course, is an incredible illustration. Boaz then becomes a type, if you will, whispering the name of Christ, redeeming Ruth, and his redemption of Ruth, rather, points us to this cosmic redemption that would come even through their family line, through the children that Boaz and Ruth would have, because their great-grandson is David, the king of Israel, through whom Jesus Christ was born. Church, do you see? Paul is borrowing from the wealth of meaning and history behind this concept of redemption when he tells us that we have been justified by grace as a gift through the redemption of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the one who writes himself into the story, agreeing before time in the redemptive covenant to become our eternal kinsman redeemer. Jesus buys us back. Jesus saves us from eternal captivity. Jesus pays the price for our cosmic debt and pulls us back from the shackles of Satan, sin, and death. See, it's natural at this point. I think I think helpful, important for us to fully grasp what Paul is getting at, what this concept of redemption and ransom really mean, is to ask what exactly is our debt? What was our captivity? Or to what, to what were we slaves? What was the exact price paid? And, and to whom was that price paid? Who was this ransom price paid to? So first, when we, when we think about what exactly is, is our debt, well, we are, or what, what really is our bondage to that? We are slaves to sin. See, while we uh, are born in sin, we are also enslaved to it. The apostle hits on this in, in numerous uh, times throughout his writing, but particularly through Romans. And specifically in Romans 6.20, he says that you were slaves to sin. So we are not able to not sin. We, we are owned by sin. We are gripped by it. We are bound up in sin. And the consequence of that, that the debt that we are in, that we are condemned to death. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that Paul famously and simply says that the wages of sin is what? Death. In other words, the consequence, the payment, the debt we owe because of sin, because of that enslavement, because of that, um, that ailment that we have, that debt is death. The price, the price is precious blood. 
See, to be released from captivity of sin uh, and, and the death that we have incurred, that, that a death therefore is required. See, if the wages of sin is death, then to be released, one must die. But any death would not do. It must be the death of a person who is not also bound up in the same enslavement and the same captivity that we are. It has to come from someone who is free, someone who writes themselves into the story. And that's what Peter is getting at in 1 Peter 1 when he says, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb, or rather that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, Jesus is a sufficient price, or rather his blood specifically is a sufficient price to be paid because it is unbound by sin, and therefore it is, it, Jesus does not have the consequence of, death, consequence of death or the debt also owed that we owe. So he's freed from our debt. He is freed from the problem of sin and an enslavement to sin. Therefore, he is a candidate for our salvation or to be our savior, to be our ransom, to be our redemption. The ransom then, to whom is it paid? If Jesus' death is is the price, if if he is not uh, bound to death, he's not bound to sin, he can be, his his blood is sufficient, and yet to whom will this debt be paid? Well, I I think it's best to understand that this, this payment, this ransom is actually paid to God. Now, this is a rather challenging to understand, and and much ink has been spilt to try to harmonize uh, all of this through the the history of the church. The best way, I think, to bring together the providence of God with the nature and consequence of sin is to understand that Jesus paid this ransom to God. That is to say that our ransom was paid by God to God. I think this is the only way that Romans 2, 23 and 24 can make sense, which we've explored the past number of weeks, that we all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, but we are justified by God as a gift through the redemption of Jesus Christ, God the Son. See, our ransom was paid by God to God. And and perhaps it's helpful to note where many commentators would suggest that, that the ransom is actually paid to Satan, that he is the overlord of our of our sin and our death. But but that, that would somehow make Jesus beholden to Satan. That would somehow make Jesus underneath the thumb of Satan. And Jesus is never under the thumb of Satan. He is not controlled by Satan. He's not beholden to Satan. He is not manipulated by Satan. Jesus is victorious over Satan, sin, and death. Therefore, he makes no payment to him. He pays him no mind. He has him completely bound up. So it makes no sense to pay Satan because Satan is a slave himself to death, sin, and eternal separation from God. See, Paul is telling us that the story of our salvation is a work of the righteous one who not only proclaims church, our righteousness as a gift of grace, therefore he is able to make that proclamation because he has purchased us out of death through his own blood. In in other words, our salvation is not merely God speaking over us, though this is incredibly and eternally powerful but he's also one who does a work on our behalf as our kinsman redeemer. See, like Ruth and Naomi, we face death with no way to pay our way out. And Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, wrote himself in the story as a gift to pay the price and to purchase our freedom. See, the fact that we are justified through redemption 
tells us about the nature of divine justice. Specifically, that justice is a perfect union of, of God's wrath and God's love. We're going to explore this much more next week when we consider in uh, verse 25 that Jesus is our propitiation as well. So we've been looking at righteousness. We've been looking also at Christ and understanding uh, what he has done for us, that he is our grace, that he is our, our redemption, that he is, he is uh, the one who justifies us. And see, what we understand then about God's justice and about his, his love here and his wrath and his love is that God never overlooks sin. He didn't he 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 did not just come to justify us and say something that but also that he did he did not just come to to say something about it or or to 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 acknowledge it but he came to actually do something about our situation that God does something about sin and and the consequences of sin specifically he pays the price for our ransom and to redeem us he buys us back what this tells us is that God not only never overlooks sin and justice, but equally God never only looks at sin out of love. He doesn't just overlook it and he doesn't just only look at it. This is such good news. See, at one and the same time, his wrath is upon all ungodliness. And we're taking that theme all the way back to Romans 8, 1, 18. Romans 1, rather, 18. And his love makes us one together with Christ at the exact same time. That's Ephesians chapter two, verse five. So, so both his justice and his affection, his wrath and his love are, are summarized in this great work of ransom or redemption. See, our understanding, I think this is really hard for us to see these two things coming in tandem because I think ultimately it comes down to our understanding of Jesus' death. See, our understanding about wrath and love comes down to our understanding of Jesus' crucifixion. But Jesus' death never really sits well with us. So our understanding of his death is always a bit problematic. It, there's always tension around it. And, and this, I think, is where we really relate with the apostles. See, like Peter, I think we are still averse to the idea no matter how many times we hear about it. Like the disciples, we hear Jesus speak about his self-giving role in redemption and think it's sentimental. It's, it can't be literal or actual or effectual. Just give me the seat at your left or at your right, right? Or like Peter, even worse, get behind me, Satan. Perhaps we may think that Jesus' death is real, but we still often fail to fully acknowledge and understand how his death is meant to inform and shape our daily lives as followers of Jesus. See, he is not just our example. He doesn't just show us the way to go as he gives his life on the cross. But he is our savior, that he does a liberating work on the cross that frees us from the shackles of sin. So for us to understand that the, the wrath and the love of God, we must look to the cross. But as we look to the cross, we have to acknowledge a few things about ourselves. See, in large measure, our think, I think our views of Jesus' death demonstrate, are demonstrated in our ideas of forgiveness and justice in general. We seem to have developed a couple of, of, of ideas that I'd like to consider. We developed ideas about forgiveness, which are without cost, and ideas of justice, which are without mercy. Forgiveness without cost, justice without mercy. We might say 
And I think this is often our lived experience when it comes to reading the Bible and knowing God. We might say that we don't believe that wrath and love can show up at the same time. We don't think wrath and love can show up at the same time. See, in our modern world, not unlike the first century Rome, we've developed competing principles of righteousness, which we, when we uh, consider them closely, seem like a false choice between God's wrath and God's love. We believe in a type of forgiveness then without cost that no one has to pay. In other words, the wrath is really not upon us. Or we believe in a type of justice without mercy that everyone has to pay, a kind of, a kind of justice or a kind of wrath without any love. Let me explain first how we demonstrate forgiveness without cost. And, but, but let's acknowledge, I think it sounds really nice. It sounds noble. Forgiveness without cost. It feels really loving, but it's not grounded in reality. Sin breaks. Sin hurts. Sin brings death. This means that when we sin, harm has been caused and therefore a debt has been incurred. If nothing else, we have violated the holiness of God and the fidelity of our relationship with him. Harm has been caused. Something has been broken. Death has shown up. Take my sin as an example, if you will. Something that may seem really, really small, but I hope illustrates and gives us a picture of the larger issue that befalls all of our hearts. A few days ago, I was impatient and I was selfish. It was not the first time and it will not be the last. I raised my voice at my, uh, to my, my daughter and I didn't give her a chance to speak. I had to ask for her forgiveness. I, I had to say, Glory, will you please forgive me for my lack of patience, for raising my voice? I love you and I was not showing you love. Will you please forgive me? Now I could tell when I was saying that to her that Glory was hurt. That when I raised my voice, and that when I spoke the way that I did, not giving her a chance to speak, it, it told her something. It broke our relationship. It, to be sure, not irreparably, but, but it broke. There, there was friction. There was tension. There was something there that had been lost. My words hurt my daughter. So when I asked her for forgiveness, she had a choice to make. This is what happens when we acknowledge the cost. If she does not, if she does not forgive, she can hold that hurt as a payment of debt over my head and perhaps bring it up later and try to shame or hurt me back with it. But she knows that there's that payment there. There's that debt there. Or she can forgive me. But in forgiving me, she is agreeing to take on at least a portion of that price. She is agreeing to pay the price of my sin. She is agreeing to absorb a portion of that pain, which she does not deserve because it wasn't her fault. To be sure, some of that cost is often weathered and experienced in consequence, but when we forgive one another, we are at least at some level agreeing to pay part of that penalty, to shoulder part of that sinful burden that sin has caused. You see, forgiveness without cost is not love. In fact, it can easily become wrath. Hear, hear this, church. When we embrace forgiveness without cost, we are believing a lie which says that the love of God has nothing to do with his holiness. We might ask, why does Jesus have to die at all? Why doesn't he just forgive everybody and tell them 
all, all's good. Everybody's in my family. We're going to have eternity together. It's going to be dope. Nobody worry about it. He doesn't do that. That's what we see at the cross. See, th- this comes from this idea that no one needs to pay. But obviously, when we look at the cross, God says someone does. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, we need to mirror that ethic and live out that ethic as challenging as it is to identify what pain has been caused, what cost or debt has been incurred. Seek forgiveness. And as those who forgive, even agreeing to take on part of that consequence and that pain. And that's simply what takes place in a relationship that is modeled after the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's also consider the way that we show faith and injustice without mercy. It can sound really strong, justice without mercy. It can feel like we're really living by some kind of moral fortitude and righteousness, but it's not grounded in love. Honestly, I think there is a fear that takes hold of us when we think about giving someone mercy, like they won't learn their lesson. We like the idea of grace and mercy, but we don't actually think that it's effective. Indulge me with another parenting illustration, another slice of parenting, if you will. There are times when I try to teach my kids the gospel by taking their consequence from them. Whatever they might have done, if there is, uh, and I know it might sound silly, but instead of them, I lose screen time or I have to sit in a timeout and so on, something like that. But if I'm honest, whenever I take their consequence, I fear they're only going to take advantage of that situation, of this wildly experimental parenting idea. And I honestly fear that they'll just keep disobeying and keep sinning and keep, and one day talk about how their dad just let them get away with everything and was always taking their punishments and they never learned, you know, consequence in life or whatever. Maybe they'll tell an employer or something like that. Um, See, I think what's really revealed in my fear when, when I start telling myself that is that I don't trust mercy. I don't trust it. I don't trust that sacrificial love shapes my children more than a rigidity with the law in our home. See, this leads to parenting and judicial strategies that make reconciliation and mercy seem foolish. Hear this, church. When we embrace justice without mercy, we are believing a lie that says that the law of God is more transformative than the love of God. We're believing that the law of God, to be sure, which was given out of love, we're believing that the law of God is more transformative than the love of God. To be sure, God shows his love to us when he gives consequence that we might be corrected. To be sure, God shows us love when we have to endure suffering and pain and difficulty of the sin and evil and brokenness and death in this life. But often, we wonder, why does Jesus love broken people? Why doesn't God just banish sinners? See, we believe that everyone has to pay. But that's a kind of justice without mercy, a kind of wrath without love. See, in one sense, we are tempted to forgive without paying consequences. But this is is a rebuke of Jesus dying. In, In another sense, we are tempted not to forgive at all. But in doing so, we rebuke Jesus dying for us in our place. So how might we see justice and forgiveness united? How does the costliness and the mercy of God find harmony together? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus is where God's wrath and love meet in an uncompromising force of redemption. It is a just affection which transforms not only us, but 
everything. Now, I've never read or seen Harry Potter. I know, whatever. Don't judge me. But I've heard of him and many books uh, that I have read reference J.K. Rowling's work. Nevertheless, in a scene in the first book, a picture of the power of self-giving love and ransom, I think, is made really clear. Lord Voldemort tries to kill Harry, but uh, remains untouched. When he asks his mentor, Dumbledore, uh, about it, he responds this way. He, your mother, he said, died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's, mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give you some protection forever. There is a kind of self-giving love that is infinitely more transformative than any justice without mercy. There is something in that where we see that Jesus willingly takes our place on the cross, dies in our place and for our sins upholding the justice of God, demonstrating the love of God. Few to my knowledge in recent years have exhibited the harmony of God's wrath and love in, our, in a modern setting like Rachel Dinan Hollander. During the, tri the trial of Larry Nasser, who sexually abused more than 150 girls and women, here's what uh, Din Hollander said in her victim impact statement. She read aloud in Nasser's presence. There is a final judgment where God, or all of God's wrath, and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me. But here's how she, what she says, though I extend that to you as well. Den, Den Hollander captures something of God's wrath and love, which do, do not merely coexist in some sort of ethereal theological space. Rather, redemption was the governing force through which she saw her value as an image bearer and even Nasser's, while never laying down the morbidity and brokenness of evil and sin. She has to agree in that moment of forgiveness to endure a certain kind of pain and loss and costliness that she did not deserve. But in doing so, what she is acknowledging is that Jesus Christ has done that in an infinitely and exponentially greater way. Redemption is the way we have been saved by Christ. Therefore, redemption is the way in which we are called to live our lives for Christ. This is not just some story about God. This is the way in which we are called to be believers and followers of Jesus because we are bound to both justice and mercy. We are bound to both a life of costliness and forgiveness. Are you with me? Because redemption is our new bondage. 
See, one of the many paradoxes of the Christian faith is our freedom. You see, while we've been ransomed and freed from sin and death, we do not now live as we please. We have been saved by Christ for the purposes and kingdom of Christ. Paul says it this way in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul understands something fundamental about about Jesus because Jesus is our ransom. Therefore, we become his servants. We have not been saved to become whatever we want to be, nor to do whatever we want to do. That's precisely what got us into spiritual debt was our own uh, wisdom and our own opportunity and our own agency, our, our own license and our own lawlessness. That's what got us into debt. That's what got us to sin. That's what got us to death. But we have been freed from sin in order, hear this, to be bound to Christ. Romans 6, 18 and 22, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. See, freedom is not about being unbound. Freedom is not about being unhindered to do as you please. Freedom is about becoming who you are bound in Christ. See, it's redemption that harmonizes an apparent contradiction in the Bible. We are free in Christ, but we are bondservants or slaves of Christ. We are bought back from death and hell. We are purchased for the purposes of life and heaven. Do you see, Jesus was not telling James and John that he wasn't going to ascend an authority to a throne. He was telling them he wasn't going to go the way that they thought he was. See, they could never have guessed that the way to the throne was going to be the way of a ransom, the way of redemption. See, Jesus was teaching them about a kingdom they could have never expected, a kingdom in which the king sets his people free through his own death, a kingdom in which believers find life through serving, a kingdom of redemption where wrath and love, forgiveness, mercy, justice, and love complement one another in a life of costly grace. See, that's the way of the cross. This is what it means that you have been redeemed. You have been redeemed. You have been bought back by Christ for Christ. So Heavenly Father, help us to live for you. Help us to be a people bound to you. Help us to be a people, even when it is so challenging, to live the way of costly grace, of embracing both your justice and your love. Help us to remember that we were a people purchased so. We were a people purchased by your justice and by your love, that we might be a people of justice and of love. Do this work in us and so many more things that we don't even have the wisdom to ask. Would you do a work in us and in our church for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.